oftentimes have these conversations across the country and talk about how we are typically limited to one sandbox. And that when we're given opportunity to play in different sandboxes and other doors open up to us, usually we thrive. That was Ken Oliver speaking at JFF's annual Horizon Summit. Ken is an evangelist for Fair Chance Hiring, the topic of today's discussion. He's the executive director of the Checker Foundation, just one company that's helping people with criminal records find work and even sustainable careers. Year by year, more companies are committing to Fair Chance Hiring, but each year, hundreds of thousands of workers are still being left out of the workforce. I'm your host, Tamisha Bridges-Mansfield, and welcome to the second season of the Horizons podcast. It shouldn't be exceptional to hire people with records. And I myself went to jail 12 times. And what really drives that is poverty. I don't want people to lower the bar. I want people to lower the barriers. That's not that hard to do. We didn't know this was possible. Ken Oliver himself is a member of a group of Americans that is not as small as you may think people with records. According to the Sentencing Project, one out of every three Americans has a criminal record. And every year, more than half a million formerly incarcerated individuals are released back into the community and the workforce. However, one year after release, three quarters of those potential workers are still unemployed. Today, we are talking to the leaders who are working to shift these numbers for the sake of workers and for our economy. In these interviews, we will carry these conversations forward from where they started, on the stage at JFF's annual conference, Horizons. So, let's start by listening in at Horizons. Here is Ken again interviewing Larry Miller, the Nike executive responsible for the success of the Jordan brand. Larry is also a member of that same not-so-exclusive club, the formerly incarcerated, a secret that he kept for decades. So in, in January of this year, Larry wrote a book called From the Streets to the Boardroom. And I've had the pleasure and privilege of having several conversations with Larry about his work and his trajectory, and we couldn't possibly unpack it in the time frame that we have today. So what we're really going to talk about is his transformation um, while he was serving time in a Philadelphia prison and how he used an AA degree community college program there to catapult himself to a BA degree at Temple University in accounting of all things, right? And I said, Larry, I said, you don't see a lot of cats coming out of prison to get a degree in accounting. He graduated at the top of his class. So talk a little bit about your transformation, Larry, and, and what happened. I'll start with, um, you said how the book came to be, and it was really my oldest daughter who pushed me and pushed me saying, Dad, you uh, have a story that um, can motivate and inspire people. You need to share it. And reluctantly, I agreed to do that because for, for 40 years, I hid my background. I hid the, um, you know, the things I had in my past because I was afraid that it would uh, negatively impact uh, the career that I was building. But uh, to Ken's point, when I was incarcerated the last time uh, in Pennsylvania, there was a program in place there when I got there that uh, you could take classes inside the jail. And there were a number of colleges that were offering classes inside uh, uh, Montgomery County Community College, Philadelphia Community College, Temple University, LaSalle, Villanova, all were offering classes inside the jail. And then the way this program was structured, 
you had to take a certain number of classes inside the jail and have to have half of your minimum sentence in, no, no write-ups, no trouble, and then you could qualify to move into uh, this program where there were trailers outside the jail wall, and you actually lived in those trailers and could leave every day and go to school and just have to be back to the trailers by 8 o'clock at night. And when I first heard about that program, I was like, that's how I want to do my time. I mean, if, <laughs> if, if I got to do time, I'd rather do it like that. Um, and that was what motivated me initially to get into that program. But once I got into it, I started taking the classes inside, uh, moved out into the trailers, uh, started at uh, going to Montgomery County Community College every day from the trailers. And eventually, I really started to believe that I could change my life. And I think that is one of the keys to really getting people to be able to move on and do better things in their life. It's really, they have to believe it. And it started with me actually believing that I could change my life and that I could do something different with my life. And it was that program that really fostered that belief for me. The problem is that program doesn't exist anymore. Welcome back to our studio. We'll hear more of Larry Miller's remarkable story later in the program. Now, let's carry the conversation that Larry and Ken started forward. A 2018 study by the RAND Corporation estimated that for every dollar invested in correctional education programs, four to five dollars are saved on reincarceration costs. So, how do we make more of these investments and make them work? I'm joined now by Lucretia Murphy, director of JFF's Center for Justice and Economic Advancement, also known as CJ. Hi, Lucretia. It's really good to have you in conversation today. Hi, Tamisha. It's always so great to talk to you. Going back to the last segment, um, what are the chances for a Larry Miller success story today? You know, Tamisha, unfortunately, the chances just aren't there the way that Larry had it. I think what he talked about in conversation, what he put in his book, or just the number of opportunities that he had for post-secondary education while he was incarcerated, and even an education release opportunity um, to be able to get an education before he was fully released, so that when he did leave prison, he left with the degrees and the credentials necessary to get the job that he wanted. You know, those opportunities just aren't there anymore the way they were for him then. Yeah, so let's dig into that a little bit. What happened to programs like the one that Larry benefited from? So really, after Larry was incarcerated, uh, policy and perceptions really changed. So anything that was perceived as a privilege and education was seen as a privilege was cut. And so opportunities for people to have access to Pell Grants was eliminated in 1994, which then made a number of institutions that had previously offered post-secondary education left. That meant people who had started weren't able to finish, but we also had 20 years of really no opportunity. Um, Ascendium Education Group put out a report that only about 7% of America's institutions are providing post-secondary education in prison. And so it just means that there is a very limited opportunity for people who really are looking for, an, for education to find it while they're incarcerated. Yeah, so can you talk a little bit about how the work of the Center for Justice and Economic Advancement partners and works specifically on addressing this effort? So, you know, we're really excited to lean in here. As you know, um, the Center for Justice and Economic Advancement is part of JFF that's had a decades-long mission around economic advancement. 
And, you know, we're really grateful for the funding from the Blue Meridian Partners Justice and Mobility Fund and are working with other members of that fund, like Just Leadership and Center for Employment Opportunities, to really be able to think about how the work that we're each doing builds up to a greater collective whole. You know, at CJ, we see this as an opportunity to continue the vision, particularly for people who are incarcerated. So we are, you know, really excited to partner with um, Ascendium Education Group and serve as the managing intermediary for their Ready for Pell initiative, which is really working with about 22 grantees and other partners like Operation Restoration and the Formerly Incarcerated College Graduates Network, um, Prison Reentry Program, prison a PhD to kind of make the case again for institutions that want to provide post-secondary education in prison to provide them with the technical assistance so that they can really think about how to maximize Pell and also how to make sure that the quality of what they're offering in post-secondary while people are incarcerated really equips them um, for opportunities either to continue their education or to move into work once they're released. So as you know, in 2021, the U.S. government lifted a longstanding ban on allowing people who are incarcerated access to Pell Grants, and it really opened the door back to funding um, for education for students who are incarcerated. What do you think is the potential from the standpoint of CJ's work for more post-secondary education in prison? You know, it's an exciting moment because this coalesces with a lot of what we're also seeing in um, post-secondary education for people who aren't incarcerated to really think about access, to really think about quality, to really ensure that what people are learning in post-secondary equips them. And I think we can just take it now really in a targeted way to people who are incarcerated. So, for example, this opens up the number potentially of post-secondary institutions that can bring opportunities to people who are incarcerated. And another thing that we're seeing is um, consortia within states. So multiple state institutions coming together, both public and private, to really think about how they deliver education, how they deliver credit in a way that could maximize opportunity while people are incarcerated, but then ensure that when they're released, there's already a, a network of institutions that can help them find their place when they get home. We're really excited about the opportunity to expand offerings, but also want to work in all the partners saying the same thing on quality. Since people will be using their Pell Grants and there's a cap, let's make sure that what they're getting is what they need and of high enough quality to prepare them for their next steps. And that also speaks to access. I mean, we've seen that typically there are fewer opportunities for women's facilities and there are for uh, male facilities. Also within facilities, um, folks who've been incarcerated also talk about the fact that even though it may be disproportionately um, black and brown folks who are incarcerated, the classrooms are then disproportionately white. And we want to make sure that wherever we can find equity and access, that that's occurring while people are incarcerated as well. And it's really a great moment to do that because quality, equity, and access are part of the larger post-secondary landscape. So we're just moving that narrative to ensure that when people are incarcerated, they're considered students and the same impetus for quality and equity and access for students outside is also a primary point for students inside. 
No, I think that's a really excellent point, just to make sure that equity is a through line no matter where you are at a given point in your life. Um, the other thing I want to touch on, and you, you brought this up a little bit earlier, was related to uh, the actual hiring of people with records. So according to research from SHRM, you know, the Society for Human Resources Management, the vast majority of employers who actually do hire people with records, um, they report that they spend the same amount of money on those workers as other employees, and the performance level is actually equal, if not better. So those really do sound like really good incentives for employers to look a lot more closely at people with records. Are there other tangible benefits of hiring people with records, and what industries do you think could really benefit from fair chance hiring? Yeah, so I'll start first with the SHRM research and kind of thinking about those benefits. And the research they did laid it out really well, talking about, you know, issues of cost, which are concern, issues of performance, you know, but there are also, you know, evidence that people with records stay longer. So the retention that people are really look employers are really looking for is also another benefit. The estimate is almost $87 billion by keeping people with records, um, particularly those who've been incarcerated, out of the workforce. So, you know, at a time when, you know, the country is facing a need to address social problems, but also to get ahead of new opportunities to have those kind of resources back um, and at work for our communities um, would really be a benefit um, overall, and I think that that message that gets out that because it's beneficial for employers and at a time when employers need talented workers, it shouldn't be exceptional to hire people with records, right? It should really just be expected that you're getting the best talent. Thank you so much for joining us, Lucretia. And as you know, I'm really excited about your work and really excited to support the growth and really the impact that the center will have. Thank you, Tamisha. I'm so excited about this conversation. And as you know, always so excited to keep working with you on these issues. Lucretia Murphy moderated a panel of employers committed to fair chance hiring at JFF's 2022 conference, Horizons. Let's listen as Ken Oliver from the Checker Foundation returns, along with Ken Kimura of Union Pacific. Now listen carefully because the conversation will switch between those two Kens, but I think you'll know which one is speaking. The conversation starts with Sean Hoseman, who co-founded Persevere in the wake of his own experience with incarceration. I own my own software companies, and I've been trying to do good work, but in the middle of that, um, I became an alcoholic and a drug addict, and I myself went to jail 12 times between uh, August of 2010 and July of 2012. And when I came out the other side of that clean and sober, I had to figure out what I wanted to do, and I really realized that I wanted to get more involved in second chance hiring. One of the things I think that made it for me was that I owned my own company. I paid myself a salary, I had staff, I had clients, and nobody could tell me no. Even if I was ready to go like a lot of our folks are who are caught up in the criminal justice system, even if they're ready like Larry. So I really believe that a lot of skill sets, a lot of skill development, a lot of entrepreneurial ownership um, is one of the keys to really helping our folks systemically that get caught up in that system to come out of that system and really be able to make their own way. And as we know, children of incarcerated parents are about seven to 11 times more likely to become incarcerated and really changing the whole pathway and the social capital raise of that entire family. 
That's such a great point, Sean. And I know the work that, um, again, my colleague Michael Collins is leading and that we've been talking about at JFF, it's been a topic of conversation, is the difference between income and capital. And I think that you laid that out, too, that as we're thinking about that impact, we also need to be making sure that people with records have access to the capital that it takes to change income and wealth. Ken, I'm going to move over to you. Ken Kuamura is the Manager of Strategic Partnerships at Union Pacific. And you all are taking a commitment from the hallowed grounds of Union Pacific and trying to make sure that it touches down and changes a community. Can you talk a little bit about the place-based work that you all are doing? Yeah, what we have found out is that by doing some of the things that we're doing now, we are having a direct impact in some of these communities. Being associated with some of the people that we've gotten to meet during the last three or four months to learn more about second chance hiring you know, it's more than just us developing a pipeline in, in an untraditional market. We actually are helping when we put someone back into the community with a job where they can sustain a household, you know, provide insurance, provide, you know, education, provide all kinds of other support services with the help of the community partners, we become a better employer. And that's been important for us, you know. So now we, we've added that to our spiel. So, Ken, what is your call to action for employers as they think about who they hire, where they hire, what level of opportunities they give people? It's really a great question because I spend 90% of my time uh, at the Checker Foundation talking to companies about equity and about the career ladders. Because so many times in the narrative about fair chance hiring, we're always thinking in terms of entry level. And the first thing out of most people's mouths is, oh, we have some entry-level positions. And when we compare what a lot of the entry-level positions are in places like the Bay Area, which is one of the most expensive places in the world to live, and New York and L.A. County, it doesn't transfer to livable, sustaining wages. And when we take that route, it actually shows that we're ignorant of the fact of what really drives mass incarceration and recidivism. And what really drives that is poverty. And the reason I know that's true is because I have a lot of friends and know a lot of people who now have life-sustaining wages, and you couldn't get those guys to hang out after 10 o'clock. They're like, hey, I'm in bed at 8. I'm going to work. My wife is at home. Like, you know, and that's really what it is. And you know, I, I always use the analogy of trading places. I'm dating myself a little bit about what happens when Eddie Murphy was actually able to change places with Dan Aykroyd, right? And how he was able to thrive. And so it's really about access. So I encourage employers every single day that let's just not think about entry-level positions. Let's think about reskilling. Let's think about upskilling. And let's think about placing people in positions all across the corporate ladder when, when it fits. I don't want people to lower the bar. I want people to lower the barriers. And I do want to bring it back. And Sean, I know I didn't have this question on your email, but I think there's also a sense of which sectors are appropriate, right? You're in tech. You're in software. You work a lot with data. And I wonder if you could just talk a little bit, too, about what it means to bring down those barriers of expectation for different sectors. Uh, two things. In the software systems or in the software industries, um, like other industries, I think it's fair to say that there needs to be infrastructures and consideration for what kinds of roles people with, with backgrounds can fill. Um, you know, I do work with government, actually, and I do a lot of confidential proprietary data. And I have to have safeguards in place. Um, in one of my companies, 25% of my staff are previously incarcerated. So we've done a very good job, been very intentional. And even when we have background checks 
and other kind of security measures mandated by our clients who are government agencies so that their data is kept confidential. But what I want to say to the community is we've overcome those challenges. We've taken a look and been specific, and I'll get geeky for a second. You can be in our dev environment, but I can't have somebody in a production environment. You can be in my stage environment, but you can't be in my testing environment. That's not that hard to do and operate efficiently that way. The other thing I would say is that I think technology, for a lot of the things we're talking about, I happen to also teach incarcerated men and women how to be software developers while they're still incarcerated and then put them in jobs when they come out. And so I want to change the technology question a bit to say that for our communities, that's really kind of a key piece. Mm -hmm. STEM, technology, shortening that gap, black and brown communities, underserved communities, and the cycle of incarceration, technology is a solution in that space. Very important one. Yep. And Ken, I wonder too, if you could talk a little bit from the work that you do and how you see it changing communities, how does that change the relationships internally when hiring managers are now engaged, when team members are now engaged? That's a great question because that is, you're gonna face it. There's gonna be somebody that doesn't believe in what you're doing. We get the stump the chump questions all the time, right? Mm -hmm. Like, so why aren't you hiring military? Why are you focused on second chance? Well, you know, that, we are focused on military. This is just a new strategy, a new area that, that we're gonna add to our talent and our pipeline. But it, it starts with educating yourself, educating a, a few people inside your company about what you're trying to do and why you're trying to do it. But, and I learned this from Ken, the top has to be very clear yeah. on what you want to deliver and where you want to be. Welcome back to our studio. One company committed to fair chance hiring is tech leader Slack through its initiative Slack for Good. In 2018, Slack co-created the next chapter, a software engineering apprenticeship program that creates pathways for formerly incarcerated individuals to build careers in the tech sector. I'm now joined by Executive Director of Slack for Good, Deep D. Rohutke. Thank you so much for joining us. Really good to be in conversation with you today. Thank you so much for having me here today, Tamisha. One thing we say at Slack is talent is equally distributed and opportunity is not. So one of the things we've worked on for the last four or five years is trying to erase the stigma that incarceration has on potential employees and show employers how much they have to gain by expanding opportunities for those who have a criminal record. And that's why we've been working to do at Slack with our Next Chapter program. No, that's that's great. I think that stigma is really um, important. And one of the things we know is that companies report that their biggest fear around fair chance hiring is their liability and their brand reputation. So how did Slack for Good decide to make fair chance hiring a priority? I think this is a really interesting story. And um, where are any of these concerns on the table? And how did you go about educating both employees and your customers about this? initiative? So it's taken a long time. And one of the things that we realized really early on is that making sure everybody, both the apprentices and the current employees at Slack felt comfortable with this program. And that involved a lot of education having to take place. 
So one of the things we did is we took a huge chunk of our employees to San Quentin prison so they could see firsthand the talent that existed inside a a carceral setting. There are wonderful training programs, for example, The Last Mile that exist in San Quentin that train people to code while they are serving their time. So we've taken over 300 of our employees to prison and we start and almost our entire executive team has gone in and seen firsthand the talent that exists. So for better or worse, many of the people in the technology sector have never had any exposure to people who are incarcerated. But the minute you get them proximate to the individuals and they see the talent, you can see their mind shift in about a minute. They just they're ready to go and they are ready to consider these candidates versus before they walked in through those gates, they would not have. We heard earlier in the program how critical access to education and training is for individuals who are in prison, but even for returning citizens who have the hard skills, finding long-term high-paying employment can be difficult to impossible. So can you talk a bit about how the next chapter is really helping to solve that problem and how do your efforts really complement the work others are doing in prisons? Yeah, so I think it is a very big shift to come from a prison and to walk into an organization like Slack or one of our partner companies, PayPal, Zoom, Square, Dropbox. These are the best of the best companies in the tech sector. So we have to do a lot of training and a lot of coaching for our apprentices because it is a lot to work at these companies. Even for me as an executive at Slack, it takes a while to get used to this environment. So while the hard skills are learned while they are incarcerated, I think a big reason that we've seen such success at Next Chapter is the additional support our program provides our apprentices. So they get coaching from our executive director on a weekly basis. And he spent 20 years in prison, so they have a shared experience and can talk honestly about the transition from an incarcerated setting to a tech sector. They have a technical coach, so they can work on their code and really understand how to communicate with their fellow engineers, how to write code in a way that is not just efficient, but works within the culture of the code that a company has, because code is a living, breathing thing, and you have to understand how to write it within that environment. So earlier, Sean Hoseman talked about some of the privacy concerns, right, that companies have around where to place workers. What else do you think is preventing more companies from fair chance hiring? And what is some of the other work that you are doing to help bring the next chapter to more organizations and continue growing that so that they can also overcome those perceived cultural obstacles to making fair chance hiring a reality? So one of the things we hear from our partner companies or our potential partner companies over and over again is we didn't know this was possible. Um, We didn't think our customers would be comfortable with it. We didn't think our employees would be comfortable with it. But now that we know that it's possible, how do we do that? And that's why in June, we announced a collaboration with the Aspen Institute, one of the nation's leading think tanks with expertise both in technology policy and criminal justice reform to engage with business leaders and raise awareness of these kinds of fair chance hiring programs. 
and even more specifically to highlight what barriers and what preconceived notions exist around hiring from this population and provide strategies to overcome these barriers. So it's been an evolution for improving the model works at Slack, proving the model works at an additional number of 14 companies, and now partnering with one of the nation's leading think tanks to create a playbook of how other companies should do this. So we're hoping this collaboration with Aspen and the playbooks will continue to build upon our momentum where we want every tech company exec to be thinking, wait a minute, why aren't we doing this? We should be doing this. Thank you again, Deep Deep, for joining us. And I was really excited when I heard you were joining the program. And it's always, always great to be in conversation with you. So thank you for all the work and your continued commitment to, to growing it. It's always a pleasure to Misha. Before we wrap up today, I want to return to the conversation between Ken Oliver of Checker Foundation and Nike executive Larry Miller. So when Michael Jordan was about to retire from the Bulls for the last time, um, <laughs> he did that more than once, right? There was a lot of, a lot of uh, concern both inside of Nike and with a lot of our customers that uh, it was over. Because the formula was we create this really cool shoe, we do some advertising with Bugs Bunny or Spike Lee or someone, and then Michael Jordan wears that shoe 82 games and into the playoffs. That was the formula to sell product. And now Michael Jordan's not going to be playing anymore, and we, had, we chose that time to say, okay, we're going to now create a brand around him, which didn't make a lot of sense to a lot of people. But for us, we believe that um, that that logo had enough power that we could actually create a brand around that logo. And when we first started with the Jordan business, it was about $140, $150 million. And this year, it's going to be $5 billion business. So we, we did something pretty, pretty right. We did, <laughs> we did OK. We did OK. Yeah, I, I think it's important about Larry. He's understating his contribution, because at the time, Phil Knight and Nike, Jordan was retiring. They thought the brand would, was going to go down, like Dr. J's brand went down in the 80s with Converse. And they gave basically it to Larry. And, and, and the reason this story is so impressive to me is because it really epitomizes the importance of DE&I and the value of lived experience at the business case and corporate level. So there, there's a couple of things I want us to think about in the audience. I already mentioned the DEI thing, but I also want to just double down on the importance of education and what happens when you apply yourself, when you're given an opportunity and you're given a forum to do and fulfill your potential. Exactly. The, the real question is access. And so educational programs, the, you know, the president reinstituted the Pell Grant program in prison, which is great. But really talking about micro certifications and things that don't require AA and college degrees. One of the things we're doing at Checker is creating Checker University, which is going to be a tech platform that offers these micro certification programs to justice impacted people and then pairing them with employers um, in Silicon Valley and other places across the country. It, it's very, very, very important to think about access. Absolutely. And Larry Miller, who is my mentor and a great friend of mine, is the case study for why this is important. Because I don't know anybody else who took a 10-year, two, two five-year, but ended up being 10 years in prison, and turned that into the success and exploited the potential that he had and created this wonderful trajectory of a life. So, you know, I want to thank you for, you know, what you've done. Well, it's, uh, thank you. I really appreciate that. And, you know, the, uh, the purpose for me doing this, because 
you know, I could have just kept doing what I was doing and not, never told this story. Um, but to me, it was to hopefully motivate and inspire some folks who are in a similar situation to mine to be able to, uh, you know, realize that they can change their life. But it was also for folks like the people in this room to realize and understand that, um, you know, people do deserve another chance. Some of the most intelligent, creative, uh, brilliant minds I've ever met, I met while I was in the penitentiary. Something like 95% of people who are incarcerated eventually get out. The goal should be that they come out better people than they were when they went in. And that's not gonna happen unless there are programs and there are things and there are people that are supporting and helping that effort. And so to me, that's, that was one of the main goals and one of the main purposes for, for telling this story and sharing this is that uh, hopefully, you know, it would change people's perspective of formerly incarcerated people and have them willing to give people an opportunity and to tap into some of that talent and intelligence and creativity that exists inside of the prisons. I want to thank all of our contributors to today's discussion on Fair Chance Hiring. Please let us know what you thought about today's conversation and share a comment wherever you find your podcast. I look forward to carrying the conversation forward on other issues during our next Horizons podcast. For now, I'm your host, Tamisha Bridges Mansfield. <laughs>